some of the ideas they talk, particularly about the fact that um, salvation is um, difficult for most people to find, and for those who do find it, often difficult to hang on to it. That's the history of the last 2,000 years of uh, people that um, maybe want to follow God, walk with God, don't seem to be able to find the way, and often, unfortunately, people that do find it sometimes don't know how to hang on to it. And um, I dare say the title of my well, the title of my talk is "By the Skin of Your Teeth." Um, you find salvation, and by the skin of your teeth, you hang on to salvation. Something never to be taken lightly. I dare say is the main point I'm making. And to when you are looking for it, make sure you find it exactly as God wants you to find it. Don't take any chances. Don't leave anything out. Don't sort of think, oh, this will be good enough. But uh, anyhow, let's have a look at a scripture on that very thought, um, on the skin of your teeth. It's actually a Bible term in Job chapter 19. Now, Job chapter 19 is maybe almost the most quoted chapter uh, out of the, the book of Job. Lots of other good parts, but... Uh, we often turn to Job 19. And um, why don't we read that bit that we normally read, and then we'll go back to what I was going to read. So what we often turn to the book of Job is what the wonderful statement he made in verse um, 23 of Job 19, where he said, Oh, that my words were now written in a book, were written. Oh, that they were printed in a book. Well, he got his wish, didn't he? We're here reading it today that they were graven with an iron pen and led in the rock forever. Maybe a little bit like to do with the tombstone. They impressed the, the lettering into the tombstone and it hopefully withstands all sorts of weather. For I know that my Redeemer liveth and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God, whom I shall see for myself and mine eyes shall behold, and not another, though my reins be consumed within me. So this wonderful little passage in the middle of, like almost like a prophecy, uh, Revelation of Job saying, this is what is in store for me if I walk with him. I know my Redeemer liveth, and one day he's going to return, and one day, even though I'm dust, I'm going to be raised from the dead, is the basis of that. But the verse I was going to read is just one verse, in verse 20, it says, My bone cleaveth to my skin and to my flesh, and I am escaped with the skin of my teeth. Um, so there it is in the Bible, the skin of our teeth. We often use it as a phrase, something where we have a very close shave. Well, um, when it comes to salvation, I know in my case, I had difficulty finding somebody to actually tell me the truth. That was the difficulty I had. I was brought up in the Anglican Church, which was full of all the rituals and the traditions that have been handed down over 2,000 years, and particularly from the Roman Catholic Church when the Anglican Church had broken away about 400 years before that. But it had kept a lot of Catholicism in it, which had really been more pagan than it had been Christianity. And then, uh, then I went to a Billy Graham crusade, and that was enlightening up to a certain point where we at least heard there about repentance. But again, it wasn't the full gospel. Then I went to a Baptist church and learned about water baptism 
which Billy Graham didn't talk about even though he believed in it, and so on, and constantly getting bits of it. Just didn't get anybody to say, look, this is what you've got to do until we had a friend who from this fellowship here had been had repented, been baptized, been filled with the Holy Spirit, and just loved quoting any scriptures and never ever said to me once, you know, look, you don't need to do this or you can leave that bit out. So here it talks about um, that we escape with the skin of our teeth. Let's go to um, to the New Testament, to John chapter 12, the Gospel of John in chapter 12. Just thinking a little bit about somebody who had some amazing promises said to him and they were to be envied by anybody. I want to talk about the man called Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve apostles. By the way, if you ever look up twelve apostles, if you Google it, or you look at anything at all, it always says Judas Iscariot in it. He shouldn't be there. should have Matthias there, the one who took his place. But they still got Judas in there as one of the twelve. But Judas actually ended up not being one of the twelve. Just a little bit about him here. Uh, verse 1 of John 12. And then Jesus, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was that had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. And, then, and they made him a supper, and Martha served. Uh, but Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him, and then took Mary, <coughs> so two sisters and a brother here, a pound of ointment of spike now very costly, and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with a hair, and the house was filled with the odour of the ointment. And then one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him, why uh, was not this, um, so I must have left that, then said, one of the disciples, I left that bit out, verse 5, why was not this ointment sold for a hundred, for 300 pence and given to the poor. This he said not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the bag and bear what was put in therein. And then said Jesus, let her alone, against the day of my bearing has she kept this. For the poor always you will have with you, but me you have not always. Um, so a little bit insight into the man Judas Iscariot. Um, but he was given all the same opportunities as the other 11, no doubt about that. But it seems like in his heart he had a, a basic problem. There would have been a day early when the 12 apostles were all picked when maybe Jesus, and I'm only guessing on this, but I'm going to guess it anyhow, that he said we need to rely on the um, free will offerings of people. Uh, we were not working we're wandering the countryside. He obviously didn't always sleep all that well. We know the story where he said, foxes have holes and birds have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. So it must have been rough going, sort of uh, out there where wandering around, uh, not what Jesus ever wandered. We'll say he walked around uh, the land of Israel and obviously a lot of the time people would have given them things. It was sort of reasonably acceptable thing to do anyhow to somebody like a prophet and which he was as well, moving around Israel. And uh, But one day he must have asked the question, well, when people are giving us money, who wants to look after the money? And Judas Iscariot put his hand up. Why? Because he loved money. 
So he said, I'll, I'll look after the money. So he had the bag. So when people gave money, then it was Judas that was sort of in charge of it. But money obviously was a big thing in his mind, and unfortunately in his heart, according to this scripture, he was a thief in his heart. Now I'm going to take a little bit of a guess here. I wonder how well he looked after the bag. I wonder if, if there were such things as the books. I wonder if anybody ever checked the books. I don't know. I'm just putting a little bit more on Judas Iscariot. But we know that by heart, you know, he, he was not really what he should be. And then on this occasion, when he saw what in his mind was all this money being wasted, and then he made this sound like, made it sound good, he didn't, he didn't care about the, the poor at all. All he could see was the money. And we know in the end it was the money that caught him out. It was, I mean, it would have been more to it than that, but money came into it. That, um, let's go to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, we'll just pick it up in verse 20. So this is the time coming up to the crucifixion. Matthew 26 and verse 20. Now when the evening was come, he sat down with the twelve. And as they did eat, he said, Verily I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered and said, so just notice it says there that um, everyone, that must include Judas Iscariot, he must have asked that question as well, is it I? Verse 23, and he answered and said, he that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as it is written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It has been good for, have been good for that man if he had not been born. And then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? Well, there it is. He did ask that question. He said unto him, Thou hast said. So, Right then and there, there's sort of a, an open revelation that one of you is not doing the right thing and not thinking the right thing. And that heart of a thief is sort of going to catch him out. Maybe I'll stop for a minute and just think that, you know, when we come to the Lord, we want to burn our bridges. Maybe some of us were thieves. I know I was. When I was about uh, eight years old, I stole something from a shop. It's called shoplifting. And I remember that night I couldn't get a wink of sleep because I thought the police were going to come and get me. But I never did it again. So it wasn't to be a career for me. But uh, thieving is something that's pretty common throughout uh, mankind, varying from, you know, armed robbery and all that sort of thing. But um, here we see that uh, when we come to the Lord, whatever our past is, we, we want to be born again, as it implies. We want a whole new start, whatever the old life. You know, maybe now you're going to think, oh, well, I always had that problem. Well, you don't want to look at it that way because if you've been born again, then that problem's been dealt with, whatever it was before. We want to be set free, and that is the, the glory of, of true conversion. We talk about being set free from some vices like gambling and smoking and drinking and a lot of swearing and some of the old, old way we used to talk and so on. Well, uh, maybe even the heart of a thief, it can be changed so that we're not, we're not like that anymore. We're a born again creature. So the more we 
when we go through the waters of baptism, we want to bury the old man. You know, now, now and again, I was just looking at a talk that somebody gave once, commented on that, that uh, people talk about, you know, killing or crucifying the old man. You can only ever do that once, and that's when you get saved. From then on, he is crucified. It's a matter of uh, recognizing that. So, um, just jump down a little bit further to verse 47. And while he yet spake, lo, Judas, one of the twelve, came, and with him a great multitude of swords and staves from the, the chief priests and elders of the people. And now he that betrayed gave uh, them a sign, saying, Whosoever I shall kiss, the same as he, hold him fast. And forthwith he came to Jesus and said, Hail, Master, and he kissed him. Um, and Jesus said him, Friend, wherefore art thou come? Um, this is pure Jesus. If you want an example of pure Jesus, it's in that statement. What did he call him? A friend. The guy had come to betray him, and the Lord knew what he was doing. We can see that before. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And yet he called him, and another records, he said, you betrayeth the Son of Man with a kiss? You know, you've, you've used the most almost endearing way of greeting somebody, but actually in this case, it's the kiss of death. That's what you're giving me, the kiss of death. And uh, But the saddest thing in all the story is that he's one of the 12 apostles. This is not just Job Logs from down around the corner. This is one who had walked with Jesus for three and a half years. He'd done miracles in, in often in the name of Jesus and seen Jesus do amazing miracles. But the inner man, well, he never got to be born again, unfortunately. He never got to Pentecost. He'd been baptized. He obviously had a change of life. And a lot of good things must have happened, but something there was still there. So, talking about my title of my talk, The Skin of Your Teeth, he got that close. But it wasn't just salvation for Judas, because Jesus said, one day you twelve are going to sit upon twelve thrones. You're going to be something really special in the kingdom of God, and, and you're going to have twelve crowns on your head. You're going to stand out in the crowd. And later on, when you turn to the book of Revelation, we have what's known as the four and twenty elders. And the four and twenty elders in the book of Revelation are the twelve patriarchs from the Old Testament and the twelve apostles from the New Testament, representing those two major parts of God's kingdom on earth. And he would have been one of those. And in the, when later on when we have the new Jerusalem come down from heaven, it mentions that the, the both twelve are mentioned. The twelve patriarchs are part of the, uh, part of the, uh, the new Jerusalem, the foundation, and the twelve apostles, part of the gates. They're all there. And the, his name would have been in blazon, you might say. And he threw that all in. But really for anybody that goes, get fully and wonderfully saved to walk away from the Lord, maybe, well it is, as tragic. Maybe you weren't going to be on a throne with a crown on your head, although Paul talked about us all having crowns on our head. And uh, so there we are, that uh, he got that close, and yet he betrayed the Lord, for, well as we know, for 30 pieces of silver. And um, so money did get involved. But I didn't finish reading it, did I? Verse... Um, uh, pure Jesus, I said, didn't I? Verse 50. 
sorry about this. Um, Green, wherefore art thou come? And then they took him and laid Jesus, and so it goes on. We know the Jews, Judas, when it hanged himself, took the silver back, realised, of course, that he was mostly dealing with people even more wicked than himself. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were very wicked people. Don't have any doubt about that. Doesn't always, Somebody in clerical robes doesn't always mean that they're a godly person. And they certainly loved wearing their clerical robes of that era. And yet in their heart, as Jesus said, you're full of dead men's bones. That's how he described them. You look beautiful on the outside, he said, like a, a white sepulchre. But inside, that's what you're really like. And other things he labelled them with. So they went back and and uh, and uh, they uh, said, oh, what's that to us? We don't care, you. You know, we got what we wanted. And with the money, and they called it blood money, it was their blood money, they went and bought a, a plot of land which was for for criminals' burial and so on. And a little bit confusing when it says that Judas, a bit descriptive, isn't it, that, that he was thrown and he disintegrated. As the Bible uses other words. They said, well, wait a minute, how did he get crucified? And how did that happen? What happened was, when he when he hung himself, they cut the body down and they threw it into the valley of death. That's what it was, and that's also described in the Bible. So what a what a what a dreadful end to a you know apostle of the Lord. But um, you know, so um, he just didn't value what he had, did he? Not enough anyhow. Let's have a look in John chapter five and just in verse thirty nine. It just says, well-known scripture, John chapter 5, verse 39, Search the scriptures, for in them you think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Um, there's a lot more there, but just grabbing that thought. I came to the Lord because of the scriptures. Might all have different, different testimonies. We do all have different testimonies. Different things that attract our attention. Sometimes people are sick and they get witness to. I think... Um, uh, Phil got witnessed to by Colin. It was his carer. Man was sick, and unfortunately, he can't be with us at the moment. Love to in his heart, but he can't at the moment. And uh, so, there's somebody who the the I'm not saying later on the baptism, the Holy Spirit didn't become paramount, but it was divine healing that caught his attention. And uh, but I know in my particular case, I was only a kid. I was only 17. Uh, there's nothing wrong with me. And every life was good in every way, but it was the scriptures that converted me. And it was when people opened up the Bible, and I realised I wasn't saved. You know, I think of Josiah when he found uh, when they found the Bible that they'd lost. I think we talked about that recently in the temple, the book, a book as they called it. He really reacted when he wrote read those scriptures. When you read about King Josiah, and, wow, we're in big trouble. We haven't been keeping the Passover. We haven't been keeping the Sabbath. We haven't been doing this and that. And, you know, the wrath of God must be out to fall upon us. That's how he reacted to what he read. Now, I didn't quite react like that. But when I read Mark 16, which is the first scripture shown to me, I knew I wasn't saved. I've been told that I was. I've given my heart to Jesus and all that. But when I read Mark 16, I didn't fully understand. All I knew is, I haven't got what that says. I'm not right with the Lord yet. So it is good to search the scriptures. And if somebody says to you, you know, give me a scripture whereby you know that you're saved, you know, there's lots of them. But I've often given that to a lot of people out there that claim Christianity, and their eyes glaze over. They can't think of it. And in the end they say, oh, 
I'll give your heart to Jesus. Now, hang on a second. I said a scripture, not a little saying that somebody made up, because that's actually not in the Bible. Surely if we're going to quote the authority of our salvation, we need to search the scriptures. For in your you think you know yourself, you need to have the Bible. So therefore you quote things like Mark 16, you quote things like John 3, you quote things like Acts 2 about being born again in John 3 and receiving the Holy Spirit and all and so on. Mark 16, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's not a good, that's not a bad one for starters. You know, belief really does have to come in front of it all. You're not going to go anywhere if you don't have some, it might only be a small amount of belief, but at least uh, some belief there. And so it goes on. Uh, in Acts chapter 26, another pretty well-known little passage where the Apostle Paul was um, giving his uh, testimony in front of a couple of uh, worldlings, one a, one a Roman and one a uh, Egemean Jew. One was uh, a Roman general, Festus, and the other one's Agrippa, who was an Egemean Jew. Bit of a mixed bag there, and the the um, the Roman really had no idea what Paul was talking about. And just in um, in verse twenty four of Acts twenty six, and as he spoke for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, "Paul, thou art beside thyself; much learning doth make thee mad." I got a feeling that Festus didn't really get it. I don't think the penny dropped, as we said. Didn't really know what Paul was talking about. And to him, he said, this is a madman. Talking about miracles and voices talking to him on the road and, and all these things and maybe quoting the Bible. And he, he's crazy. That's all he got out of it. Just never got anywhere near. A bit like in the, in the sower and the seed, sower of the seed, and it falls on the stony ground and the birds got it before it germinated. Well, that was Festus. Never, it never even germinated with Festus. And then he was gone right there in number one. But uh, Paul went on to say, he said, I'm not mad. Simple statement, most noble Festus, still very um, respectful. But speak forth the words of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth of these, knoweth of these things, before whom I now speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him. For this thing was not done in a corner. Now, before we read what Agrippa said, his family had been connected to the whole story of Jesus. Uh, I don't know whether it's uh, two generations or three generations, but we know that Herod the Great, an ancestor of Agrippa, who mostly was his dad, with quite a few, uh, quite a few uh, Herods, he had, of course, tried to kill Jesus when Jesus was born. Then we read on down other other ones, you know, one who had John the Baptist executed and so on. So the family of Herod didn't have a very good reputation, but were very aware of Jesus. I mean, at the time of John the Baptist and executing him, you know, the Herod of that particular time was fearful that it was, you know, that, uh, that um, the, sorry, the condemnation of Jesus, that it was, it was John the Baptist come back to life again. So they're sort of aware of the whole story. One of them, of course, was Jesus was led in to be judged of that Herod. We know there, Antipas, I can't remember all of them, we've got a gripper here, we went in front of him and uh, we see there that he questioned Jesus and even said, show us a miracle. You know, they're sort of aware that Jesus was involved in miracles and that sort of thing. So a lot of it would have been a history there that his family knew about, but also he would have known the Bible. He was sort of a Jewish 
half Jewish anyhow, Egemean Jew, would have known the Old Testament and so on. So there's a lot of background there for this guy that Festus didn't have. And we just see what Herod said. And King Agrippa, uh, or what Paul said, Believest thou the prophets, I know that thou believest. And Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. But talking about the title of my talk today, The Skin of Your Teeth, he almost is not good enough. I wonder if all generations for the last 2,000 years, there's been many, many people that almost got there. They almost did it. Um, I think I mentioned in one of my talks about a young guy I got to a meeting, wasn't a, a great personal evangelist, Got in, finally got into a meeting and that was that, that hymn, uh, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And the last verse talks about Thy friends despise and forsake thee. And he looked at that and he pointed to it. We're reading, I sh- we're reading the book and he said, I couldn't handle that. So he got to that point. He'd been talking to me for weeks. It was really interesting. But when it said that his friends would reject him, he honestly said, I'll give it at least honestly, I couldn't handle that. And it never came to another meeting. So he got that close. He was very fascinated by what I was saying. He was a total non-believer when I talked to him, and unfortunately he ended up being a non-believer. But they get that close, how sad that is. Um, 1 Peter and chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, and then um, this is the by the skin of your teeth part of uh, passage in the New Testament, if you want to put a label on this bit of the Bible. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16. Yet if any man suffer as a Christian suffer persecution that is, let him be let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. For the time is come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall be the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? And if the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the sinner appear? Once they really let us know, you don't take risks with your walk in the Lord. You don't think it's just for granted, I can do almost what I like and so on. God's a gracious God, he'll forgive me. That's a big wave that has gone throughout Christendom in recent years. Lots of books written on the grace of God and all that. What people are doing basically is abusing the grace of God. You know, when Paul said, you know, shall we sin that grace may abound? He said, God forbid. And yet often there's sort of people almost hinting, look, you can do anything, the grace of God will cover it, you know. And then there is an argument there. Well, I'm not saying there isn't. There's an attitude that's wrong there as well, that we don't abuse the grace of God. It is there and we benefit from it many, many times. There's no doubt about it. But we never have an attitude, oh, we'll push this a bit. God will forgive me. God understands. Oh, you don't want to get baptized. Well, he's a loving God. You don't have to get baptized, you know. So you still want to live partly in your old life. You're, oh, you're living with your boyfriend or you're living with your girlfriend. Oh, well, you love each other. That's all that matters. You've got all these arguments where it sort of lets us off the hook. When I read this, I think, whoa, you can't take those sort of risks. You can't sort of live in sin. As, you know, nobody talks about that anymore these days. You can't do that anymore. You know, when we're involved in our, as in our fellowship, we make a stand on things like Drugs and alcohol and smoking and gambling. We say, look, we don't want that to be part of your life. We have some wonderful testimonies here today. 
of people that have been set free from that. It's wonderful for somebody to come into a fellowship where people don't smoke. Smoking is one of the most difficult things to give up. The addiction of cigarette or nicotine is one of the most powerful uh, addictions. To be set free from that is such a wonderful thing. Some people are rather blessed. The Lord just takes it away. Others have to struggle with it a bit. But in the end, we know that it doesn't work with your walk in the Lord. You can't really have a walk with the Lord and still be smoking or taking drugs or or an alcohol. Now, people talk about a little bit of alcohol compared to the, a lot. All we found in our fellowship over the years is the best thing was to have an alcohol-free zone because that works. Now, a lot of people might, we might be able to have a glass of wine and get away with it. But there's another person sitting next to you that can't have a glass of wine and get away with it. Why? Because they're an alcoholic. So for them, it's wonderful to come into a fellowship that is alcohol-free. So you might say, oh, look, I can handle that. You know, I like having a glass of wine with my Okay, you can handle it. I'm not saying maybe you can't. And you mostly won't be damned for it. I don't know. I'm not going to say you are. All I know is that in the nearly 60 years that I've been in our fellowship, I'm so glad that we have an alcohol-free zone. All right, we, I dare say we harp on that a little bit, but it works. My father died giving his testimony, so you've got to be careful giving your testimony. In those days, we used to just stand up. I'm talking 1968. And stood up. That where Ben's sitting, a couple of rows back. No, no worries there. You don't have to stand up to prove it. So um, he was standing up giving his testimony. And my mother used to accuse him of being on the plonk when they had an argument before we came to the Lord. And I used to think she was wrong. I didn't think my father had a problem with alcohol, but he did. And it wasn't until after he came to the Lord that he confessed that he did. And uh, he used to be what's called a cupboard drinker. You don't drink cupboards, but you hide your, you hide your alcohol in a cupboard. And my brother Ben said, I never ever found any. He said often he'd be going through the shed looking for something. He'd find one of Dad's bottles of wine hidden in the shed. And so that was my dad. And um, he never got drunk or anything. He just couldn't live without alcohol. A lot of people don't realise that. You don't have to get drunk to be an alcoholic. It's when you depend on alcohol that you're an alcoholic. It might only be one a day. You're depending on it, though. You need it. You can't do without it. And he has given his testimony. He's been in the Lord eight years. And as he was standing giving his testimony, uh, he was a very articulate man, my father, a lot more than I, I am. had a great command of the English language. Remember, uh, towards the end of his life, he was in the hospital. He had a hip operation. And he asked, he asked me, oh, I'm sorry, I asked him, would, would, I, would, would he like me to buy him something? He said, yes, a dictionary. He wanted to read a dictionary to try and find some word that he didn't know. They had a very great command of the English language. When he gave the testimony, he really thought it out and spelled it out. So he's going through his testimony, and I remember I was up the backs. I'd gone out to check on our kids. I can't believe we used to do that. We used to leave our kids in the car, but we did back then. And go out and check on the, on the kids in the car. And um, I come in, Dad's giving his testimony, so I stopped at the back. And I was just sort of leaning back on a trestle at the back of the hall. My mother was sitting next to my father, and on my on the other side of my mother was my younger brother Mark. And my older brother Ben was sitting somewhere in the meeting, and also he'd been moved to Canberra. But I think it was of the Lord. He just happened to be back that weekend to get a bit of gear before he went back to Canberra. So our family was there. That was good. Gee, I'm stringing this out a bit, aren't I? Anyhow, Dad was um, giving his testimony, 
And he, the last words that passed his lips were these words. Before I came to the Lord, I used to get my courage out of the bottom of a bottle. And with those words on his lips, the main artery to his heart burst. He didn't feel anything. You could tell a little bit of a puzzled look came over his face. And before he hit the floor, he was dead. We didn't know that, of course. Later on, this was all discovered what happened. So they have got a big medical term for that, which I can't remember. It's easy to explain it that, that way. So he rejoiced that when he came to the Lord, he got set free of alcoholism. So may we always have that sin because it really does help. Okay, we might give up something a little bit ourselves, but we do it for somebody else. And the fellowship works so much better. You realize, of course, alcohol is still the number one problem in the world of drugs. Not heroin, not marijuana, not smoking. It's alcohol. We have, uh, in our fellowship in Adelaide, we have a brother who's a psych nurse, psychiatric nurse, uh, David um, Haynes, and often he's on, on emergency on a Saturday night, the busy night, maybe Friday night as well, when people are coming in from all the problems. And his wife, Athena, said to him once, um, you must have a lot of people come in that have got problems with, with drugs. He said, yes, we do, but 90% is alcohol. It's funny, you know, they've got a lot of ads out against the horrors of cigarettes, which should be there. They don't do it with alcohol. Why? Because people, the politicians, like drinking. They're not going to do what they ought to do. And yet alcohol is a major problem. And it is wonderful to have a fellowship where it is not a major problem. And we greatly encourage people, give it up. Your walk in the Lord will never, it'll never work. I digress all over the place here. But anyhow, maybe it needs to be said. Um, I just wanted to look at um, a couple of passages here. I wrote them down. Um, let's turn to Matthew chapter 7. I'll finish in a minute. Matthew chapter 7. Many of you will awake, refreshed. Others will be blessed by the talk. Matthew chapter 7. Now I'm going to read this to you in the Amplified. It's always a little bit hard to follow it, isn't it? When somebody reads out of the Amplified and you're trying to follow it. So I don't mind if you just want to sit and listen and we read it out. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 7 verse 13 to 14. And in the Amplified it says, Enter through the narrow gate. Because the word straight there it doesn't mean a straight line, it means narrow. Enter thou through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad and easy to travel is the path that leads the way to destruction and eternal loss. And there are many who enter there through it. But small is the gate and narrow and difficult to travel is the path that leads the way to everlasting life. And there are few who find it. So if you're blessed today that you have found it, you are an exceptional person. I know I've said a couple of times in Adelaide, you know, if you've been baptized in Spirit-filled and you're in the Lord one week, you're already a miracle. There's so few, first of all, you can do it, and even there one week later. To think you're a survivor is fantastic. In Luke, on the same passage, it says, strive, we won't turn to it, I'll just read it out. Strive to enter through the narrow door Force aside unbelief and the attractions of sin, for many, I tell you, 
will try to enter in, to enter by their own works and will not be able. I think that's the saddest one where they try to and they can't do it. Um, I want to just have a little thought that just Helen and I are discussing it this morning. I thought I, nothing really to do with my talk, but I'd like to throw it in and then I'll finish a little bit after that. And it's the thought of being thankful. I don't think we are thankful enough. I know I'm not. But being thankful is a wonderful thing because often we can get into the grizzle, the grizzle world, and something's wrong. We start to moan a little bit. It might be mine, it might be mage, it doesn't matter. We sort of get into that habit. And yet when you are a person that is thankful, even when everything's gone wrong, even when bad things are facing you, the best thing you can do is be thankful. You know, you might be able to put down a little bit of this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong and that's why I'm feeling unhappy and, and I'm a bit of a grizzler. But over here, I'm now going to make a list of the things that God has done and the, God, and the list will go on and on and on. You'll run out of time writing down the great things that God has done starting off with salvation through Jesus Christ and so you could go on. And all of a sudden, the, the little grizzle list is just not there anymore. Why? Because you've flooded your heart with being thankful. And I just want to read out what it says in Colossians, and you can turn to it if you like. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, again I'm going to read it though from the Amplified. I won't read anything more from the Amplified today, but I'll just read this passage. Colossians chapter 3, and verse 15 to 16. It says, Let the peace of Christ the inner calm of one who walks daily with him, be the controlling factor in your hearts, deciding and settling questions that arise. To this peace, indeed, you are called as members in one body of believers, and be thankful to God always. Let the spoken word of Christ have its home within you, dwelling in your heart and mind, permeating every aspect of your being, as you teach spiritual things and admonish and train one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and again it says, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And I just think it's a secret that we often forget. We should stop. What a great way to start off the day. Wake up in the bed and think, now what can I be thankful for? Before I start thinking about that challenge I've got today that work situation which I'm not very happy with or, or whatever it is. Now, what, what can I be thankful for? Well, in my case, that lady still snoring alongside me. By the way, Helen doesn't snore. I'm the snorer. And, and you could go on with that. What about this? What about that? There's so many things. And then you think, oh, that's a nice way to start the day. All right, we've got to finish on this point. Um, let's go to Second Peter chapter 1, and we'll finish with this passage. It's got such a lot of good advice in it about finding the Lord and keeping the Lord. And if anybody knew about trials and tribulations, it was dear old Peter. He was a guy that um, forever put his foot in it, got told off lots of times by the Lord, but he was faithful to the end. Second Peter 3. He never got, never got bitter about being told off. Not only did he get told off by Jesus, we never got told off by the Apostle Paul even on one occasion. And yet his attitude was brilliant, the only way I can put it. Here we are, Second Peter chapter 1, just start reading verse 3. According to his divine power, hath given unto us all things 
the pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that called us to glory and virtue, whereby given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. You know what, you could go backwards on that, and you could say, whereby given unto us promises. Or you could go back a little bit further and say, whereby is given unto us precious promises. Or you can go back a little bit further and say, you, know, you can see where I'm going, that he really lays it on. They're not just precious promises or precious promises, they're great promises, they're exceedingly great and precious. Oh, gee, I'm overemphasizing that. But that's how he saw it. That's how fantastic it was to have the things of God. Verse 5, And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith. And go through a list of addings. Faith to virtue, virtue to knowledge, knowledge to temperance, temperance to patience, patience to godliness, godliness to brotherly kindness, and brotherly kindness to love or charity. For if, and then it says, verse 8, For if these things be in you and abound, so again you could leave out a bit of that. You could just say, if these things be in you. But now he adds to that. He said, they're not only in you, they are bound in you. That they make you that you shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sin. So the first part of this passage is all how great it is and what God has made us and what we've gone. And, you know, as you grow in the Lord, you add, you add, you add. And then he says, by the way, if these things are not happening, then blindness is coming in, the gristles are starting to mount up. Where can I find fault? There's always plenty of fault if you want to find it. You know, I can be grumpy, I can be this and all that. And it just says you've lost, you can't see it far off. You've forgotten that you were purged from your old sins. Wherefore, this is preferable, the rather, brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure. And then he says, for if you do these things, you shall never fall. And that's so important to us. Now and again, on rare occasions, thank goodness, only on rare occasions, you have people that have been in the Lord for decades and they get their lines crossed right at the last minute. How sad is that? To walk with the Lord for decades and then get tripped up by something. We don't want that. We want to hang right into the end. And then he says, um, for so an entrance shall be uh, ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though you know. He said, I know you know them, but I'm going to keep on harping on it to remind you of it and be established in the present truth. Yeah, I think it meet all right as long as I'm in this body, tabernacle to stir, stir up, stir you up by putting you in remembrance, knowing it shortly, and he talks about his own death. So, it's a great passage. Find the truth, make sure you get it absolutely right, and then never let it go. And all the people said, Amen. Amen.